0: Hello, welcome back, and thank you for listening again to the History of the Congo. Episode 8A, From the East to the West. Last time, we left the land in what is now the eastern Congo in 1874. We met many of the peoples in the region through the narratives of the Arab ivory and slave traders, and by the diaries of the European explorers. The great empires of the region, one by one, had been subjected by various means to the will of the Arab traders. The Arab traders were hungry for ivory, which they were happy to obtain by trade, extortion, or, if necessary, military conquest. Insama and the Tabwe people had suffered the first brutal war, followed by the Western Lunda Kingdom, who, even though they were foes of Insama, decided to reinforce their position of power over the Arabs. They were, however, soon defeated. Emsiri, chief of the Heke Kingdom in Katanga, the southeastern tip of today's DRC, took a different tack. He wisely sent envoys offering ivories a tribute essentially to be left alone, which halted the attention of the outsiders. But as the Arabs travelled further and further east, they met kingdoms who had not seen the weapons of the modern world. The mighty and ancient Luba had revealed themselves as a prosperous nation at the centre of a vast trading network, which stretched all the way to Madagascar. They exploited what they saw as a fantastic trading opportunity, as they exchanged all the ivory they had for low-value goods. Finally, we met the Shensis, who were both alarmed and overwhelmed by gunfire after launching a direct assault on Tip's forces. In these various ways, the eastern peoples were subdued in much the same way as their counterparts in the Kingdom of the Congo had been hundreds of years earlier. But in the 19th century modern guns created a much greater military imbalance than the antique muskets once had. The eastern kingdoms had little opportunity to withstand militarily. They didn't have the chance to establish diplomatic links and form alliances as the Kingdom of the Congo once had achieved. Ultimately, Tipu Tip was declared sovereign in these areas, and now he had control over a vast swathe of today's eastern Congo. Such disruption meant that the economic networks of the African kingdoms were diminished in importance. Miramba, the textile good manufactured and sometimes used as a currency, was not of value to the Arabs. The only items the kingdoms could trade in exchange for foreign goods were ivory and, as in the West, slaves. The slave trade here was of a much different nature. Firstly, it was of a much smaller scale. Slaves were traded by the kingdoms as they always have been in the region. Livingstone himself tells the story of a heartbreaking example, where a young woman was sold into slavery after alleged infidelity by a jealous and much older chief. The ladies and her friends in the village were distraught when they saw their friend in shackles. They offered her food and as much comfort as they could provide, but to little avail. The slave trade here was much more direct. Much to the protest of Livingston, and other Europeans, slaves were captured directly by the Arab caravans when necessary, or as opportunities arose when kingdoms were in positions of weakness. This was in contrast to the West. In the West, apart from the disastrous specific campaign in Angola, slaves were captured by other African tribes and sold to European intermediaries. We also found the first signs of natural co-development in the town of Anyangwe, The town had plentiful food, water, and was relatively safe, perched on a hilltop. It was here that we left Tip, having just assisted the British explorer Cameron to embark on his trip all the way to the African Atlantic coast. Here Tip remained for a further two years, enjoying the prosperity of the town, until in 1876 another European explorer arrived. We have already been introduced to him, but not in full. His name was Henry Morton Stanley. Spurred on by adventure, fame and money, Europeans were now arriving much more frequently. They had ever more loftier ambitions. Stanley himself arrived at Nyangwe to find the source of the Nile once and for all, and the Lua with its northerly flow, still represented a good candidate. This was regardless of a fellow explorer's discovery of the source at Lake Victoria some 16 years earlier. At this time there was no conflict between the Arabs and the Europeans. The Europeans were few in number, and Tip much later on revealed that he saw them more or less as fools. To the empires reigning in these lands, the Europeans were just another outsider. In contrast to the Arabs, they did not represent a threat on any level. Even their efforts to spread Christianity were largely ineffective. Livingston only made one conversion to Christianity, although this did not deter him from his continued efforts. In a Nyangwe, Stanley was just another one of these oddities, although he was, in the wider world, the most famous explorer alive. He was certainly the most impactful on the Congo, as we shall see. He has been much aligned in some accounts, but of course the truth is far more complex. He warrants a book in his own right, and he has several dedicated to him, including the excellent Tim Geel biography. But, as you know, Stanley's knife is not as we're here for. This is a podcast on the Congo, and what I really want to cover is the lives of the people living there, with a view to trying to explore how today's Congo can be both fabulously rich and overwhelmingly impoverished at the same time. But Stanley is an important figure in the story, and his life before Africa gives a great excuse to shed some light on other parts of the world at this time. The wider world is coming to the Congo, and increasingly we need to look through a wider lane to explain what is happening there. So, after wrestling with this for quite some time, here's what I've decided. The next podcast, 8B, is going to be heavily Stanley-focused. It will all be about Stanley's life leading up to this meeting. There will be little reference to the Congo, but it will shed some light on how Europe and America were confronting the world outside of our region. But this is the history of the Congo, and some listeners may want to skip this. So to accommodate this, I'm going to write the next podcast as an interval, which you can choose to skip and continue listening to the Congo story, starting again at the western shore of Lake Tanganyika in 1876. But it will be a shame to miss, as although this podcast is the history of the Congo, the Congo is so intertwined with the rest of the world that the rest of the world is part of the story. The interval will be the same length as a normal episode, so you might want to consider this before diving in. Oh, and it's a hell of a story. So next time, I might join you in cold, damp Wales back in 1841, or the tropical Congo in 1876. The choice, as they say, is yours.